Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex work that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Mata Hari is often thought of as one of the most famous femme fatales of recent legend, inspiring countless retellings throughout the years. But here's the thing about Mata Hari. She wasn't a femme fatale at all, at least not in the way we think about it. And if what we think we know about Mata Hari isn't true, then just how does her story go? Truth can be elusive, flexible. And when it comes to Mata Hari, there's one lingering question that rises above all else. What exactly is fact? And what's the fiction she created for herself? Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're wrapping up our five-part special on Femme Fatales. These women have a bad reputation, and sometimes they're indeed criminal. But if you've listened to this show, you know criminal is a relative term. Some of these women were criminalized simply because they were powerful. Others were only criminals if they ended up in the wrong country's court of law. Today, we're diving into the almost mythic life of Mata Hari, legendary dancer, courtesan, and possibly spy. We'll decipher what's truth, what's fiction, and who Mata Hari really was, both the seductress she presented to the world and the modern woman she was inside. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. 
Mata Hari wasn't born a legend. In 1876 Holland, at the time of her birth, she was just Margareta Gertrauda, the eldest daughter of Adam and Ancha Zella. Her father was a vain man who cared a great deal about what others thought of him. He had three sons, but his darling daughter was always his favorite. Like her dad, Margareta, or Magrate as she was called, craved attention. Lucky for her, it came without much effort. From a young age, she stood out from the crowd. Not only did she have a bold personality, but she had a striking appearance too. Unlike her fellow Dutch classmates, whose blonde hair and blue eyes fit the stereotype, Magrate had a dark complexion and dark hair. She looked like an exotic foreigner in her own country. Magrate lived in a patriarchal society where women were often reduced to their looks alone. Rather than resent that fact, she embraced it. According to author and historian Pat Shipman, she learned as a young girl that she could get what she wanted by pleasing men, starting with her doting father. It was pretty easy. Her dad loved the attention that she brought the family, so she simply kept doing what she was doing. She practiced her manners, played piano, even learned French, all to charm the adults in their town. In return, her father showered her with expensive gifts and constant praise. Magrate assumed this was the way her life would always be. But before she turned 13, her father unexpectedly declared bankruptcy. The money troubles that followed caused her parents to separate, and eventually, her dad moved away to Amsterdam and seemingly forgot about her. It was the first time he ever let her down, and the first time Magrate ever felt like she wasn't good enough. For a little while, Magrate and her siblings lived with their mother, but Ancha struggled to take care of herself, let alone her family. She was heartbroken, penniless, and soon fell ill. In 1891, less than two years after her husband's abandonment, Ancha Zella died, leaving 14-year-old Magrate virtually parentless. Magrate hoped this meant her father would come get her and all would be right with the world. But he ended up only taking her twin brothers, Two 10-year-olds were an easier sell to his new wife than a headstrong, demanding teenage girl. But Magrate didn't know the reasoning. She was just sent to live with an aunt and uncle and left wondering what she had done wrong. There, Magrate sulked, then grew resentful. But her aunt and uncle had no time for her petulant behavior. They wanted her to find a husband or a trade, whichever came first. Unable or perhaps unwilling to deal with the precocious teenager, they sent her off to boarding school to become a teacher. Magrate had the brains to master all of her classes, but her temperament didn't exactly scream loving educator. Teaching was a selfless career, and Magrate rarely had any concern for anyone but herself. At that moment, she was much more focused on finding someone to fill the void her father left behind. She desperately craved the praise and attention he had always given her. Soon enough, she found exactly what she was looking for in the headmaster of the school. 
Before we continue with McGrate's psychology, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to researchers Franklin B. Crone and Zoe Bogan, the need to aggressively seek attention and be accepted by men is common in young girls whose fathers have left due to divorce. It's all about getting approval and validation from these replacements, filling in the space the father once had. For McGrate, drawing the attention of the headmaster of the school, Webrandis Hanstra, did exactly that. He praised her for her intellect, her charms, and her beauty, just like her dad once had. It escalated from there. When the headmaster initiated an affair, McGrate was more than willing to go along with it. He was 51 and married. She was 16 and had never had a sexual experience. This tracks with Crone and Bogan's research, which found that young women are more likely to engage in promiscuous sexual behavior following a father's abandonment. McGrate's dad had left an indelible mark on her. For one, he had unwittingly tied her self-esteem to the validation of older men. And second, she had learned that pleasing men was the easiest way to a happy life. It worked for a little while. She flourished during the affair, truly believing that she was happy, until eventually the whole thing blew up in her face. When the affair became public, McGrate was expelled. Hanstra, of course, remained in his post. 16-year-old McGrate learned a valuable lesson that day, that the world would always judge her morals harsher than that of a man's. But McGrate wasn't going to let that bring her down. She left the school and moved to The Hague, on the western coast of the Netherlands. The city was full of possibilities, but more importantly, it was full of officers. McGrate had always had a thing for men in uniform, and in her new home, there were plenty of them. Most were on leave or had just finished their service in the Dutch East Indies, or what is now modern-day Indonesia. As McGrate settled into her new city, she longed for someone to share her life with. She liked the idea of finding an older man, a soldier, who would take care of her and provide her with everything her heart desired. She just had to find him. One day, as she read the newspaper, the perfect opportunity jumped out at her. She came across a curious advertisement that made her stop and smile. It read, Officer on home leave from Dutch East Indies would like to meet a girl of pleasant character, object matrimony. She was intrigued, enough so that she wrote a letter in response. Before she sealed the envelope, she tucked a photo of herself inside just for good measure. After all, McGrate knew what got a man's attention, and it wasn't her pretty words. The man who had written the letter was 38-year-old Captain Rudolph McLeod. He was a soldier's soldier, always in uniform, even when on leave. And that was exactly what 18-year-old McGrate wanted. When they met, she was entranced. Rudolph felt the same, so much so that he proposed just six days later. McGrate, of course, said yes. The two were married later that year in July 1895. As always, Rudolph wore his uniform for the ceremony. 
McGrate took the opportunity to make more of a statement. She walked down the aisle in a bold yellow silk gown that trailed after her for days. No one could take their eyes off her, just as she had intended. Unfortunately, the blissful honeymoon period didn't last long. While McGrate and Rudolph had some moments of happiness, most of their time together was mired with jealousy and frustration. Everywhere she went, McGrate received attention from men. This shouldn't have come as a surprise. Rudolph knew what his wife looked like, but it sent jealousy coursing through him all the same. And when McGrate flirted back, as she often did, it made him furious. He wanted his wife for himself, but McGrate wasn't a woman who could be changed or controlled. And she wasn't exactly thrilled with her new husband either. Mood swings aside, it turned out he was also in huge amounts of debt. She could have dealt with the jealousy, but the money problems were a non-starter. McGrate was accustomed to a life of luxury and had a serious fear of losing all that. She would do anything to avoid being poor. The couple's problems were momentarily put on hold when McGrate became pregnant. She and Rudolph were both thrilled and excited, and in 1897, 21-year-old McGrate gave birth to their son, Norman John. Soon after that, Rudolph was ordered to head back to the Dutch East Indies, and his wife and son would come with him. McGrate went with an optimistic attitude. She thought a fresh start in a new place might be just what they needed. Indeed, the Dutch East Indies turned out to be a transformational place for McGrate. She was smitten by her new home. Where Holland was dull and boring, the colonies were vibrant and exciting. She embraced the exotic art, culture, and nature. She felt freer than she had ever felt back home. The same couldn't be said for Rudolph, whose flaws only intensified. His jealousy and anger reached new heights, escalating from verbal insults to physical abuse. But McGrate wasn't just going to take it. She refused to make herself small for her husband. While the marriage soured even further, McGrate still found ways to enjoy her time in her new home. She threw herself into the culture, soaking it all up. She even participated in a musical during a local celebration. It was the first time she had ever performed in front of a crowd. But of course, she was a natural. She commanded the stage, and when the audience erupted into applause, she lapped up the praise. Perhaps it was at that moment that McGrate realized she didn't need her husband at all. Her self-esteem greatly depended on other people's opinion of her. But if she could have a whole crowd of people, who needed a single useless husband, especially one who didn't appreciate her newfound talents? By this point, the friction between McGrate and Rudolph seemed worse than ever, likely caused by the serious accusation hanging in the air between them. McGrate suspected that her husband had syphilis. This was an extremely common disease at the time. A vast majority of soldiers serving in the Dutch East Indies contracted it, and there was no known cure. The medical field had some theories on how to make the symptoms subside, but no one really knew for sure. 
Not only was McGrade concerned about contracting the disease herself, but it was also likely that Rudolph had passed it along to their son. But Norman hadn't shown any symptoms. So in 1898, when McGrate gave birth to a daughter, Louise Jean, she was hopeful that her worry was for nothing. Unfortunately, her relief was short-lived. In 1899, both of McGrate's children got sick with what seemed like syphilis symptoms. Rudolph immediately called the doctor. At the time, medical professionals believed they could treat syphilis with mercury. But this doctor only had experience treating grown men. So when he administered a dosage, he gave the kids too much. In the end, baby Louise survived. Two-year-old Norman did not. It was the worst pain the McLeods could imagine, and each of them blamed the other. Rudolph thought McGrate hadn't been taking care of the children properly. McGrate accused Rudolph of spreading syphilis to them. The hatred was intense and unbearable. The two could barely look at each other. Over the next few years, they fought, separated, got back together, and then fought some more. But their son's death had caused an irreparable rupture in their marriage, and nothing they could do would change that. Eventually, McGrate demanded a divorce. She had no idea what she would do next. She just knew that she could no longer stay married to this man. Rudolph felt the same, but had one condition. He got to keep their daughter. McGrate may have been a force to be reckoned with, but this was still a man's world. If she wanted the divorce, this was the only way to get it. She told herself she'd never really been cut out for motherhood anyhow, and so she agreed. She'd say goodbye to her daughter forever. Now, for the first time, McGrate was truly on her own. She decided to seize the opportunity to become whoever she wanted to be. Author Pat Shipman wrote that she tried on new personas as if they were dresses. She dabbled in acting, modeling, even riding horses in the circus, until finally someone suggested she try her hand at dancing. The thought excited her and she latched onto it, but she also knew there were two huge obstacles she had to overcome if she truly wanted to do this. The first was that she needed to separate herself from the crowd of other dancers. To do that, she decided she would be the most revealing of the lot, even daring to dance in the nude. The second problem stemmed from the first. If she danced nude, she was going to get arrested for indecency. But that's when McGrate came up with the most brilliant part of her plan. She would frame her dances as sacred rituals that had been passed down from an imagined ancestry. She would take advantage of her foreign looks and convince everyone that she was really Indonesian. But in order to pull this farce off, McGrate had to fully commit. So she chose a new name that meant Sunrise or Eye of the Day in Malay. And just like that, Mata Hari was born. Up next, McGrate becomes Mata Hari and takes the world by storm. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from Parcast. 
If you haven't had a chance to check out my series Mythology, you don't know what you're missing. Heroes, gods, monsters, and mayhem. This podcast has it all. Every Tuesday, take a deep dive back in time, exploring the history, origins, and meaning behind the myths that have shaped the Earth. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes a story pulled from beliefs from around the world, giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe and how those stories resonate in our lives today. Recent episodes include the epic battle between Hercules and Theseus, the grieving spirit known as La Llorona, and a treacherous journey to the land of the dead. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Follow Mythology free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, back to the story. After divorcing her husband, 29-year-old Margareta McLeod went through a period of exploration. She tried several new professions, searching for a way to make an income and live the life she desired. Until eventually, she decided to become an exotic dancer. This wasn't some passing, whimsical phase, either. She fully committed to her new endeavor, even changing her name. From then on, she was known only as Mata Hari. In 1905, it was time for the newly coined Mata Hari to finally perform. She scheduled her debut at an Asian art museum in Paris called the Musée Guimet. The event was highly publicized, and a whole crowd of wealthy elites packed into the building to see the performance. 29-year-old Mata Hari walked out onto stage in a transparent, revealing costume. On top, she wore only a jeweled bra and an elaborate headpiece. She left very little to the imagination, and as the show progressed, she shed her layers. Watching her dance, the crowd was mesmerized. She was described as sensuous, erotic, and emotional. According to author Pat Shipman, the performance was a story of lust, jealousy, passion, and vengeance and the public lapped it up. Finally, she shed her final layer, revealing the nude lower half of her body. If Matahari had been an ordinary woman, she would have been arrested on the spot for indecency, but her plan worked perfectly. She'd framed her performance as a sacred religious act, making it art, culture. She wasn't doing this to be scandalous, she was sharing her heritage. Technically, she was stealing that heritage from others and twisting it to suit her needs. But Matahari had no problem lying if it helped her own cause. And in this case, it certainly worked. Matahari quickly became the toast of the town. She performed all over the city, and with each dance, she became more and more desirable. 
every man wanted to claim her as his own, or at the very least, as his mistress. That was just fine with her. She didn't want to be married again, but she did enjoy all the love and admiration. She started several affairs with powerful and influential men. Her conquests spanned the gamut, from businessmen to military officers to politicians. Each of her suitors made sure that she was never in want of anything. And in this way, Matahari managed to furnish her excessive lifestyle for many years. If she wanted a fur coat, her lover would get it for her. If a beautiful necklace caught her eye, another man would have it sent over immediately. She even received apartments from her more devoted suitors. She branched out beyond Paris, too. She performed across Europe in all the major cities. In each one, she found new men who worshipped at her feet, and she loved all of them in their own way. Or she loved the attention at the very least, and certainly the sex. Matahari had no qualms about sleeping with whoever she wanted, whenever she wanted. Even in a society where such immorality was generally shunned, she felt protected by her persona. And even if she wasn't, she didn't much care what anyone thought of her, so long as she was living large and having fun. That's all she needed. Matahari experienced nearly a decade of this lifestyle before World War I started in 1914. But even then, the fighting seemed to have little effect on her life. While the French people suffered, she was still living a life of excess. She saw no problem with that, nor did she seem to have any understanding of why others might have one with her. According to researchers Pia Dietza and Eric D. Knowles, this is a common occurrence where rich people don't even notice other people or their problems. Wealthy people require a motivational relevance for them to care about something. For Matahari, the poor French people simply didn't rank as valuable enough to her to register. Instead, she just kept doing what she was doing. That included traveling across borders, something ordinary people just didn't do. But Matahari was a Dutch national, and with that came wartime neutrality that allowed her more freedom than someone with a French passport. Even though she was technically operating within the law, her movements started to catch the eye of certain people in the intelligence community. In the fall of 1915, 39-year-old Matahari returned to Amsterdam for a time. There, Karl Kromer, the honorary German consul, called on her. But Kromer didn't want to seduce the famous dancer. He came with a rather peculiar offer. He told her he would pay her 20,000 francs to spy for Germany. He knew the types of men she engaged with, and many of them were of interest to him. The idea was that she could easily get them to shed some secrets over pillow talk, a kind of casual honey trap. Matahari couldn't believe what she was hearing. She was utterly shocked by the idea of being a spy. But then she started to think about the money. 20,000 francs would just about cover the furs and jewels that the Germans confiscated from her when the war broke out. In her own way, she thought she was already owed that money. No further work required. So she agreed to the deal. 
she promised Cromer that she would write to him in invisible ink with any information she gleaned about France. The two parted ways with Cromer thinking he had recruited the great Matahari. But Matahari had no intention of doing any spying. She intended to pocket the money, then forget about the conversation entirely. Unfortunately, that was only the start of Matahari's espionage entanglement. Only a few months later, as Matahari sailed from Amsterdam back to France, she was interrogated by a British officer who found her suspicious. There was nothing incriminating on her person or in her cabin, so the officer let her continue on her journey. But he still flagged her to his superiors. He was wary of her language abilities, her contacts across borders, and what he deemed her loose morals. All those together made her a dangerous woman in many men's eyes. They didn't understand her. Therefore, she couldn't be trusted. As Matahari sailed away, she likely hoped that was the end of all this spy talk. But now, she was on the radar of two foreign intelligence agencies. And she was about to be on a third. Back in France, another intelligence officer named Georges Ladoux was interested in her. Ladoux was the head of France's newly formed counter-espionage unit. He had campaigned on the idea that there were enemy spies on every corner. But since assuming his new position, he hadn't caught many of them. He knew he needed to start delivering on his promise, otherwise he would seem incompetent. So he set his sights on Matahari. Whether he truly thought she was a German spy or not is up for debate. It's quite possible, probable even, that he was framing her so that he could get a big win for France. A woman like her, with loose morals, who traveled across all of Europe seducing men, was easy to paint as the enemy. And she was such a high-profile name that her capture would make splashy headlines everywhere and earn Ledoux big marks with his bosses. By the time Matahari returned to France, Ledoux had ordered two of his agents to trail her. For the first few days, she didn't even notice them. They followed her on all her social calls, intercepted her mail, and tapped her phones. But she caught on quickly and started making a concerted effort to lose them. Of course, this only made her seem all the more suspicious. But the truth was, Matahari just didn't want two strange men trailing after her. She liked her independence and was determined to do whatever she wanted. And despite the men's best efforts, they failed to uncover anything linking her to Germany. Not that that was going to stop them. So long as Ledoux wanted her followed, his men would obey orders. Of course, there might have been one other reason that Ledoux was so intent on casting all this suspicion on Matahari. It may have been that he was trying to deflect attention from himself. There was a possibility, one that wouldn't arise until much later, that he might have actually been the double agent working for Germany. But we'll get to that part later. For now, the one in danger was Matahari, and she had no idea. Up next, Ladoux lays the trap to ensnare Matahari. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. In June 1914, World War I broke out across Europe, but while most were hunkered down living off of rations, 37-year-old Matahari was still living large, working as a high-class courtesan and traveling freely across borders. That soon put her on the radar of three separate intelligence agencies. Germany thought they had recruited her, Britain suspected her of being a German spy, and France either thought she was a spy or desperately wanted her to be. But even though Matahari was coming under scrutiny, she didn't care. Why? Because she was in love. Really, truly, head over heels, only one man in the world for her in love. His name was Vladimir de Maslov, or Vadim as she called him and he was a 23-year-old Russian pilot serving with the French forces. Their relationship was intense, passionate, and romantic. She visited him whenever she could, taking advantage of her neutral Dutch nationality to traverse Europe with ease. Things took a turn in 1916 when Vadim was injured in battle. He was exposed to phosgene gas, which blinded him in one eye and threatened his other. It was a testament to Matahari's true feelings that she stayed with him instead of running off at the first sign of imperfections. Perhaps because of that, Badim asked her to marry him. She said yes. The untamable Matahari was finally ready to settle down. In the aftermath of the proposal, she wanted to travel to Vitel, a town near where Vadim was stationed but it was awfully close to the war front, making it much trickier to get to. So Matahari turned to a friend for advice, Jean Alor, another lover of hers. She knew he worked for the War Department and hoped he could help. What she didn't know was that he reported to Georges Ledoux, the spy chief intent on catching her, and Alor was about to set her up. Pretending to help, he told her to go to the military bureau for foreigners, where she'd be able to get her papers for travel. It just so happened that the building was also home to Ledoux's counter-espionage unit. When Matahari arrived, she was brought to meet Ledoux for the first time. She explained her situation, hoping for assistance, but he countered with a request of his own. He wanted her to spy for France. Matahari wondered how on earth she had gotten herself into this situation again, after taking Germany's money and running off with it. After the encounter with the British officer, she likely thought this nonsense was all behind her. But she could read between the lines. It seemed to her that Ledoux suspected she was working for the other side, and she knew she needed to protect herself and her future with her fiancé. So she pretended to be interested, and when the talk of payment began, 
Her ears perked up. One million francs if she did the job right. It was enough to support her and her new fiancé for the rest of their lives. With that much money on the table, Matahari readily agreed. Surely it wouldn't be that hard to spy for France. Matahari left Ladue's office that day with no specific instructions, no set mission. All he told her was to travel to Spain and await further instructions. So she did just that. Along the way, she was stopped by British intelligence officers again. This time, they took her in for more serious questioning. They thought she might be a different woman who was accused of being a spy. When she finally confessed that she was working for Ledoux, the British officers reached out to confirm her story. But Ledoux denied ever employing her. Instead, he told them he suspected she was a German agent. If they could prove it, he said, they should arrest her. Otherwise, they should let her go and he would take care of it. Of course, there was no evidence because she wasn't actually a German spy. So the Brits let her go on to Madrid. There, Matahari tried to make good on her promise to Ladue, completely unaware of his true intentions. She just had the money on her mind. So she cast a net and found Arnold von Kalle, a German major stationed in the city. She seduced him with ease and even managed to get some real information from him. During one of their rendezvous, he let slip that there were plans for a landing of German officers, Turks, and munitions from a submarine on the coast of Morocco. Matahari was delighted. This was just the type of information that should satisfy Ladue. The only thing was he hadn't given her any way of contacting him, so she had no way of passing along the intel. By the start of 1917, 40-year-old Matahari was becoming worried. She had no way of contacting the man who had promised to pay her for spying. She also hadn't heard from her fiancé Vadim in some time. That's because, unbeknownst to her, all her letters were being intercepted. On top of all that, she was running out of money. She needed to get back to Ladue and get paid for her work. But before she ever had a chance to do that, Ladue secured a warrant for her arrest on the grounds of her being a German spy. On February 13, 1917, the very next morning, French authorities burst into her room, arrested her, and seized all her possessions before bringing her back to headquarters. Matahari was thrown into Paris's worst prison, Saint-Lazare. It was a filthy, rat-infested place where she was denied every comfort she had ever known, as well as ones she hadn't even realized were there to be taken away. The only visits she received were from her interrogators, who already believed she was guilty. As far as they were concerned, it was only a matter of time before they broke her and got a full confession. But Matahari admitted to nothing because she was innocent. She was convinced that it was all a terrible mistake and she would be free to go before long. But as time went on and days became weeks, which became months, reality set in. She was never getting out of this place. 
After three months, she finally started to crack. She wrote a letter to her interrogator, begging for mercy, but none was granted. Eventually, Matahari broke down so completely that she confessed to taking money from Germany. Her crime had been greed. But she figured if she admitted her guilt for this one mistake, they would come to the ultimate conclusion that she had done nothing more than that. After all, she had never passed any information to Germany. She didn't know how they could find her guilty for something she hadn't done. According to psychology professor Saul Kassin, innocent people sometimes confess after hours of interrogation because they're led to believe there's additional evidence coming. And that belief becomes a promise of future exoneration, which paradoxically makes it easier to confess. Over and over again, Matahari's interrogator told her that more and more evidence was on its way. At some point, she must have convinced herself that the men imprisoning her were just and fair, that if they didn't find any proof against her, they would set her free. So she confessed to part of what she was being accused of, the only part that was true. But she underestimated Ledoux and her interrogator. At best, they were too prideful to admit to making such a heinous mistake. At worst, they were deliberately setting her up to take the fall. Once she admitted to taking the money, her fate was sealed. Now it was time for her trial. On July 24, 1917, Mata Hari's trial began. The charges against her were vague and the evidence was flimsy. There was no hard proof she'd ever been a spy, let alone that she passed information to the Germans. The only thing that Ledoux and the French authorities seemed able or willing to prove was that she was an immoral woman. They paraded through the courtroom evidence of her many lovers of all different nationalities. They scrutinized her excessive spending. They made it seem as though the only explanation for a woman who enjoyed sex and fine goods was that she was a spy. And the military tribunal, made up of eight male officers, ate it up. To them, the femme fatale persona that Matahari seemed to embody was terrifying. Her existence undermined their own power of the military establishment and the system set up to keep things running smoothly. In the patriarchal society that they enjoyed, they couldn't allow a woman to have so much power over men especially not through the use of her sexuality. Perhaps for that reason alone, the tribunal found her guilty on all eight charges. And then they sentenced her to death. In the early morning of October 15, 1917, 41-year-old Matahari was awoken in her cell. She had not been told which day she would be executed on, but from the solemn group standing in front of her then, she knew that it was time. She was driven out to a muddy field usually used for military practice. The sun was just coming up over the horizon, and a firing squad of 12 young men stood in a line, some of them clearly nervous about their unfortunate task. 
An officer walked her to her designated spot and offered her a blindfold. Matahari shook her head. She would have her eyes wide open until the very end. As her sentence was read aloud, Matahari waved to two nuns who had comforted her while she was in prison. She blew a kiss to her lawyer, who had done the best he could, and then, for one last moment of fun, she blew a kiss to the priest. One sergeant in the crowd remarked, By God, this lady knows how to die. Whether she heard that quip or not, it was true. She stood tall and proud as the firing squad raised their weapons. The firing squad took aim. Some members of the crowd turned away. Others steeled themselves for what came next. And then, the 12 soldiers fired. One moment, Matahari was standing there defiant. The next, she was slumped on the ground, dead. Perhaps the scariest thing about the idea of a femme fatale is how dangerous they are to men, in theory. However, this reductive view of women wielding any kind of power through sexuality or otherwise is hardly fair, especially when looking at Matahari. She wasn't poisonous to the men around her, quite the opposite, actually. The men in her life were the ones who ruined her. She was a victim of her own naivete, yes, but also a victim of the times and the patriarchal system set up to keep women down. If she broke any laws, they were laws that men themselves could get away with, and indeed did. Just four days after her execution, Georges Ladoux, the man who orchestrated her fall, was arrested and accused of being a German spy. Unsurprisingly, the scandal was kept quiet, perhaps because no one wanted to admit that their intel may have been compromised, that they may have made a mistake in executing Matahari. Just like Matahari, there was nothing that proved his guilt. But while the case featuring a promiscuous woman ended with a firing squad, the trial of a powerful man ended in acquittal. He was free to go. By definition, the femme fatale is dangerous. She can't be trusted because she'll use her feminine wiles to seduce, ensnare, and bewitch. At least, that's what most of us think when we hear the term. But if this series has shown us anything, it's that the stories behind the myth are far more complex, just like the women themselves. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Matahari, amongst the many sources we used, we found Femme Fatale, a new biography of Matahari by Pat Shipman, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. 
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 